Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. What powerful words. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that you bestowed on us through your son, Jesus. As we just sang so many glorious truths about who you are, what you've done, and how you receive all the glory. Uh, We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word today, that I would not say anything that is not according to your will, and that you would be glorified this day. As the pulpit says here, sir, we would see Jesus. So we may, may we see him today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm very humbled to be standing before you again, bringing God's word. I guess I didn't scare you off last week, which is good. Um, I'm thankful for all the positive feedback, and if there's anybody who had negative feedback, you didn't talk to me, which is interesting. (laughs) So if you will, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We'll be back in Mark chapter 10. As we saw last week, we were studying Jesus' encounter with the rich, young ruler. What a powerful section of scripture. And I know it's very difficult to just parachute in like this, uh, but we, we did so, and, and I think we were able to, to do it well enough. Last week, we looked at his journey, his journey to Jerusalem, uh, that journey that was pre-de- uh, predestined and predetermined by the foreknowledge of God, that he would go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and on the third day rise. You remember that was the work of salvation. That was the plan of salvation, and he is on his journey. You see there in verse 17 of chapter 10, and as he was setting out on his journey. This is his journey. Uh, We saw the man, who he was, uh, a man of nobility, and asked a, a question, a great question. Um, he seemed primed and ready. He seemed spiritually minded. He was asking the right question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was asking the right person, what better person to ask than Jesus? He had a sense of urgency. He came running, and Middle Eastern nobility didn't do that. That's why Matthew said, behold, a man ran up and knelt before him. He knelt before him. He was in a position of humility before this rejected Galilean teacher who everybody knew by this point the authorities wanted to kill. I mean, he seems like the best person to answer the question in so many ways that we would want to answer it, right? And we asked ourselves that question. How would we have answered it? But we saw last week that he had a belief problem, right? His belief about the definition of good. He had a lack of trust in the Savior, and what Jesus ultimately was asking him to do was place his total trust in him, right? He, if he had done what Jesus had asked him to do, there would be no other explanation other than total and absolute faith in the Savior, because it would have had huge ramifications for a man of this position. 
we saw how it boiled down to faith in Christ. But sadly, as you remember, he went away sorrowful. He went away for he had great possessions. And we saw his position and his power were his idol. And so not only was he a breaker of the second table of the law, those that inter, the, our interactions with our fellow man, but he was also a breaker of the first four commandments in the table of the law, that you shall have no other God before me. You shall have no idols. You shall not take my name in vain and remember the Sabbath. And he was a very religious man, and every time he did those things, he was taking the Lord's name in vain because he did not worship the one true God. We saw Jesus uh, last week accepted the term good teacher, and he said no one is good except God. And Jesus had claimed to be God many times, and this is no exception. He had God standing right before him, and he turned away sorrowful. In our passage today, we see that Jesus turns to his disciples. He doesn't beg the man to come back. He doesn't try to clarify the message. He doesn't try to, you know, soften it in any way, or maybe you misunderstood me or anything like that. He turns to his disciples, and he starts to teach them. And that's what we'll see today. Now, the notion out there, we'll see, um, the, the notion is out there that you can do anything you put your mind to. You've probably heard that term. And of course, that's in the context of what's in the realm of possibility. Um, but there's certain things we can't do. Right? You think about it. There's certain things we just as humans cannot do. It's just impossible for us. Uh, we are made to be doers. And there are things that we can accomplish through setting our minds to do them. But salvation, salvation is one of those things we're going to see today. It's impossible with man. Some might title this the impossibility of salvation, but I've preferred to call it the God of our salvation. I hope you see God today and the amazing work that he does. With that, let's read the text, verses 23 through 31. We'll start in verse 23. Follow along with me in your Bible, chapter 10 of Mark. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible 
with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's bow with me in prayer. Father, we again just come before you, humbled by your word. Pray that we would learn this morning what it is you would have us to, and that we would go from this place changed and transformed by this two-edged sword. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I've broken the passage down into five points. If you're a note taker, some of you said you were able to take notes. Like I said, I'm not really a note taker. I do footnotes in my Bible. That's about it. But we will look at the lesson, the shock, the glory, the treasure, and the kingdom. So that'll kind of act as our guide as we go through. So first, let's look at the lesson. As I said, Jesus turned to his disciples. Look at the text there, verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples. Now I imagine this is not a quick glance, but a purposeful engagement of their attention. What follows is vitally important for them to understand. It's a true lesson from a true teacher. And the word disciple there just simply means learner. Uh, We are learners of him as well, are we not? So in a sense, he's saying this to us. But there, he looks around at his disciples, and he says, there in verse 23, look at the text, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So I asked myself the question as I was studying this. I said, well, what is the difficulty? Let's think about this. What what is the difficulty? Why is it that entering the kingdom of God would be so difficult? Even for those who have wealth, as we saw last week. Um, Wealth was seen as a, a blessing from God, a sign of approval, a sign of God's approval on the man's life. Um, it's, not mishard, it's not hard for us to misunderstand this today because we think of having wealth as a barrier to spirituality. Right? In our society, we think of those who are super wealthy, um, they're prone to Pride, arrogance, selfishness, independence, corruption. We see a lot of that today, right? Uh, But before you think that, well, he must only be talking about uh, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, um, 
Remember how we saw last week what it means to have wealth today. So just as a quick reminder, if you have a net worth of 100,000 or more, you're in the top 10% of the world's wealthiest people, looking at the world as a whole. And if you have a net worth of a million dollars or more, you're in the top 1% of the entire uh, world. So I asked the question, well, could he be talking about you too? Could he be talking about me? And the disciples, you see, back at the text, verse 10, 24, the disciples were amazed at his words. Now, why were they amazed? So that's the other question I asked. Well, why were they amazed? Okay, was it because Jesus asked rich people to sell everything and follow him? Whoa. Well, let's understand a little bit of historical context. We've gone through some of this. The religious culture of the day favored those with wealth. They, they saw it as a sign of God's approval. And the wealthy, they could give more money to the temple or to the needy. Uh, they, could, they, they would even sound a trumpet while doing so. Uh, so everybody knew. You can see that in Matthew 6, too. Um, even the disciples were influenced by this, and they were thinking that poverty and disease were God's curse for sin. You can see that in John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. So they thought, if it's difficult for the wealthy to be saved, it must be impossible for the poor. It was kind of an argument from the lesser to the greater. Right? And we've... We certainly have this concept today as well. Um, you've heard of the prosperity gospel. Right? The, the gospel that says health and wealth, wealth and happiness are a sign of God's favor. And so we're dealing with this today. And they, they say, well, God wants you to live your best life now. Have you ever heard that? Your best life now? All the earthly uh, blessings being directly correlated to your level of faith. You've heard that. Well, you just don't have enough faith. So you see why they were amazed. They thought, well, if those with wealth are closer to the kingdom of God, and you're saying not even they can, or with difficulty, they'll get in, they're going to ask an amazing question here. But Jesus doubles down. He doubles down. Look back at the text again, Mark 10:24. He says, 10:24. But Jesus said to them again, I imagine they're sitting there murmuring, like, what's he, what's he saying? Like, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. He generalizes it here, doesn't he? Now, let me ask you. Was it easy what Jesus did on the cross for you? Was that easy? As he made his journey to Jerusalem to suffer at the hands of sinful men, was it easy? Remember, he sweated drops of blood in the garden. 
saying, Lord, Father, take this cup from me, if it be your will. But not my will, but yours be done. He submitted his will to the Father. He also said that if they hated me, they would hate you also. And he who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He had been teaching these things. Jesus takes it a step further, though. He takes it even a step further. Look at verse 25, Mark 10, 25. He says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So, I don't know much about camels, so I did a little research. Um, I think I did see them when we visited Israel, but that's probably the only time. Well, and then maybe at the zoo. Camels were the largest animal in the region, okay? They could be up to 11 feet long, longer than this piano, six and a half feet high at the shoulder. It's not including the head, right? And weighing up to 1,300 pounds. This is a big animal. There's... Jesus says it's easier for this animal to go through the eye of a needle. Now, I meant to bring a needle in. I forgot to. But imagine it. You know what it looks like. The little hole at the top of the needle where you put the thread through, that's the eye of the needle. Some say he was referring to a small gate in Jerusalem uh, that only people could walk through, uh, which would make it very difficult for a camel. With difficulty. Uh, But there's no archaeological evidence or textual support for that view. Matthew and Mark both use language describing a tailor's needle. And interesting, Luke uses language describing a surgeon's needle. He was a physician after all. But regardless, there's no confusion. It's the needle that you thread thread through to sew. This was a colloquial term in their time where you say, it's impossible. It's just impossible. Um, Jesus was describing something that wasn't difficult. It was impossible. Nicodemus understood this. Remember when Jesus said, you must be born again? He replied, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He was saying, I can't do that. I can't do what you're asking me to do. Remember later in John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus said, It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So that's the lesson. Now the shock. Now we get to the shock. It's very fascinating that the disciples had been with Jesus all this time. He was on his journey up to Jerusalem. He was just outside of Jericho, you remember from last week. He was just outside of Jericho. He was going to go into Jericho, out of Jericho, up to Jerusalem, and die for the sins of the world. He had taught them a lot. And we saw previously that you know, wealth was seen as a distinct advantage. And if this difficulty was true of the wealthy, it's even worse for everyone else. And the disciples 
they got it. Look at verse 26. Verse 26, Mark chapter 10. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, Then who can be saved? Right, the, the word there, exceedingly astonished, it means to strike with panic or shock. That's why I titled this section, The Shock. Uh, they were mind blown. They were struck. They rightly correlated entering the kingdom of God with being saved. You notice that here. They said, well, then who can be saved? That is, saved from sin, from God's wrath, and eternal judgment. This turned the modern thinking of the time on its head. There must have been a gap, I think, probably, between their question and his answer, because they were struck with shock. Right? And remember, uh, some of the manuscripts, no, not that part. So there, there was probably murmuring, whispering, and talking amongst themselves as Jesus let what he had said sink in. I mean, they're thinking about it now, right? They're asking him, and who can be saved? This brings us to the glory. Who receives the glory for salvation? That's why it is the God of our salvation. Look at verse 27. Jesus confirms their understanding of the impossibility, but then gives the greatest hope of all. This is, this is just amazing. It's, it's just glorious. Look at 27. Jesus looked at them. And again, purposeful engagement of their attention here. And said, with man, it is impossible. Okay, you see, how could a man or woman be made right with God? Is there anything you can do? Question mark. Is there anything you can do? Let's like explore this for just a second before we get to the second part of Jesus' answer. If you're, if you're taking notes, you can write these down. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Romans 3, 20 says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So what can we do? Is there anything? Even if you were to live perfectly from now on, today, for example, uh, it's not sufficient. But look at the rest of Jesus' answer. This is amazing. Look at the whole thing. Jesus looked at them and said, verse 27, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. This is glorious news, is it not? 
desperate sinners in need of a Savior, and God says, all things are possible with God. Peace with God, eternal life, treasure in heaven, they're all possible with God. He has done it through his son, Jesus, who paid the penalty for your sins and my sins. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. John 3.16, should be able to quote it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In Ephesians 2.8-10, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we see God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In his great love, he provided this way of salvation from his wrath, regardless of economic or social status, regardless of your past sin, regardless of your efforts, regardless of your good works. Salvation is a sovereign work of God. I wanted to just dive in a little bit to this point. It's a very important point. This is kind of the pinnacle of his teaching here. So let's turn with, if you if you will, to Matthew 11. Matthew 11. Let's look at verse 25. And as you turn there, just a little bit of background. Jesus had just uh, pronounced the judgment on the cities that he had been ministering in, like um, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Tyre, Sidon, and Capernaum. He says, Capernaum, will you... Be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Amazing. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. They had God standing in their midst doing mighty works. And he says, if those works had been done in Sodom, they would have repented long ago, in sackcloth and ashes. Very interesting. But Jesus, right after this, in verse 25, he goes into a very interesting teaching. There's two parts. He says, in verse 25, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, 
and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So it's very interesting. Stop right there for a second. He says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus is, you've heard, the way, the truth, and the life, right? It sounds like he's in total control of this. But the very next verse, look at it, verse 28, and he is, by the way, but the very next verse, a general broad call. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I love these passages that put these two doctrines right together. Jesus says, no one knows the Father unless I reveal him to them. Yet come to me all, come to me all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So the call is to everyone, but God is the worker of salvation. Now let's look at one more, one more. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. These are the only two that we'll turn to, and then we'll go back to Mark. Luke chapter 18, in verse 9. I mean, what can a sinner do? How does this get practical? Salvation is a divine work of God. Oh, what does it mean to take his yoke upon yourself? Well, let's look at this. Verse 9 of chapter 18 in Luke. And keep in mind, we're, this teaching is just before the encounter with the rich young ruler. If you'll see in verse 18, that's Luke's account of where we are in Mark. But he says in verse 9, Luke 18, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look, lift up his eyes to heaven and beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So if you know you're a sinner, 
in need of a Savior, all you can do is cry out to him. Amen. All you can do is cry out like this tax collector did here. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And as we saw before, you will find rest for your soul. But he also says to count the cost, because following Jesus is not necessarily physically easy. He asks for total trust in the Savior. And that means total obedience in everything you have. Everything. When following Christ, it's important to know what his word says about every area of your life. You know, spiritually, physically, mentally, what you experience, your relationships, even culturally. We're in the middle of a culture war right now. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, it's hard to not get dragged in. I, this is not in my notes, but I was thinking about it just last night. I wonder if my daughter will be able to grow up in a world where she can go into a lady's bathroom a lady's restroom in public and not expect to find men in there, right? This is hitting home really close. Um, also with what you have, your finances, and making the best use of your time, right? God does not ask everyone to sell all that they have to follow him. But when he does, the only good option is to obey we saw that in the, with the rich young ruler. So let's turn back there to Mark chapter 10. When if your earthly possessions are no indication of approval before God, or even giving them up to somehow earn his favor, uh, then what are they and how are they contrasted with real treasure in heaven? And so that brings us to the treasure. So we've seen the lesson, the shock, the glory, and now the treasure. Peter speaks up. Good old Peter. We love Peter, don't we? He was always, or very often, the first one to, to speak. A lot of times he was probably saying what was on everybody's mind, but nobody was asking. He's like, I'll ask it. <laughs> you know? Um, but he speaks up. Here we are in verse 28 of chapter 10. Verse 28. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And just a note, Matthew adds, he asks a question. What then will we have? So Peter wants to know, right? He wants to know. He's thinking about what he and the disciples had done. He he says they had left everything. And so I asked the question of myself, had they really? Had they really? Maybe. Well, let's take a closer look. Bear with me. This is kind of interesting, at least to me. I hope it is to you, too. So Peter's original home was in Bethsaida. Okay? We, we know that because it was referred to in John 1.44. Uh, but later in Mark 129, we see him sharing a house in Capernaum with his brother. This is very interesting. Though the, the, the two towns were only five miles apart, they were in different jurisdictions. So the interesting thing is, here is there's a, there's a couple of theories about why this might be. And I don't really know what um, the reason is, 
But I was reading online, um, Murphy O'Connor, it's an interesting point. He was saying that the Bethsaida and Capernaum were in two different tax jurisdictions. And all the fish processing that was done in the region was done in Magdala, which was here. So if you look at the map, it's like Bethsaida, Capernaum, Magdala. So to catch the fish and import it, you had to go through Capernaum. And that's why you saw they had these tax booths in Capernaum. It was probably one of the tax booths that Matthew used to sit at, right? He was in Capernaum. So maybe he was trying to avoid taxes that way for his business, and so he had moved. Or perhaps he had just downsized and was house hacking with his brother. <laughs> if you don't know what house hacking is, <laughs> ask a, <laughs> you know, somebody younger. It just means you, you pair up in a house with people not usually of your own family. You share the cost of the house. Um, the old-fashioned term for that is marriage. Um, anyways, that's a side note. I just thought of that. <laughs> the remains of this house in Capernaum, they, they, they still remain today, and I've seen them. If you go to Israel, you can visit Capernaum. You can visit. It's called Peter's house. Um, Peter's calling to follow Christ manifested a bit differently than, say, the rich young ruler. And, you know, everybody's calling looks a little bit different. How, how the grace of God, God is applied to one's life looks a little bit different in every case. It's very fascinating. Peter's call, right? He, he in Luke 5, 1 to 11, he loaned his boat to Jesus as a floating pulpit. It's kind of interesting, right? After that, Peter had been fishing all night, and Jesus said, hey, put out to sea and go for a catch. He goes, Lord, we've been fishing all night. Like, I know what I'm doing. There's no fish out there right now. He goes, do it anyway. He brings in the record catch, and he realizes, I have God standing in my boat, Right? He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It's amazing. When you realize who God is, you realize how other he is from who we are. Right? Jesus said to Simon that day, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. So I thought about this a little bit. This does not necessarily mean he immediately liquidated all his business assets. I mean, he was a very successful businessman, partners with James and John. Um, it seems that he may have kept his boats in gear. We don't know for sure, but he may have been loaning them to the ministry. Mark records no less than eight times Jesus used a boat as transportation, and they called it the boat often. Um, remember, he also had a boat to go fishing with after Jesus had risen from the dead, and he goes, I'm going fishing, and he went fishing. After this encounter in Mark chapter 10 here, Remember, Peter would go on to make some very bold statements about his commitment to Christ. He would later deny him, 
And then after Christ's resurrection, he would return to his work of fishing. It was not until Christ called him again at that point, saying, follow me, that Peter truly understood and embraced the extent to which Christ had called him to obedience. After that, we have no record that Peter ever fished for fish again. Right? But Peter here is saying, Lord, we've done it. We've left everything. What then will we have? Back at the text, Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Note this is for the sake of Christ and the gospel here that he's talking about. It's not just plain philanthropy. I mean, you have examples of people giving away massive amounts, although, keep in mind, they never sacrifice their lifestyle for it. They can give large amounts of money away, but um, this is talking about for the gospel, for Christ's sake. Those whom God has called to great sacrifice on this earth will receive a hundredfold provision. What is this? What is this? Well, my friends, when you trust Christ, when you believe on him for your Savior, you've just entered the church. Have you not? He says but this is with persecutions. So Jesus may be referring to family members who will desert or persecute you on the account of the gospel. You can probably think, I'm sure many of you here are thinking of family members right now who your relationship was challenged, if we might put it lightly, when you trusted Christ, right? Jesus talked about that a little bit in Matthew 10, 34, and Luke 14. You know, we never see Jesus abandon his family. Um, we saw him still caring for his mother on the cross. You know, John, behold your mother. Um, but we also see him redefine, in a spiritual sense, who his family was. You remember in Mark 3, 33 through 35, who are my brothers? Who are my mothers? Who are my sisters? This is the gathering of believers. So do not confuse this with Jesus calling you to abandon your family. We have many places in Scripture uh, where true faith is manifested by actually caring for our families. It's very important. Uh, if you want to write these down, I won't read them, but 1 Timothy 5.8, Ephesians 5.22 through 6.4, we also see using our houses in ministry. For example, 2 Kings 5.9, Old Testament example, or Luke 
or Acts 16.15, or Philemon 1.2. We also see selling of land, doing land deals for Christ's sake and the church. You know, that's what um, Barnabas was doing in Acts chapter 4, 34. So when you put your faith in Christ, you become part of the church, the ecclesia, the gathering. This is the gathering of God's children. And in some cases, trusting Christ does not bring peace to your family. Remember, it can bring a sword. It divides against father and mother, brother and sister. You may lose your friends. You may lose your business. You may lose your reputation. Certainly, this would have been the case for the rich young ruler, right? Think about his friends, his business, his reputation, all these things. But you gain a new family. You gain a new purpose, new support, new blessings that far outweigh, even by a hundredfold, that which you would only have on this earth, right? That is the treasure. That is the treasure. It is a spiritual blessing, but it also materializes physically in this earth, right? So we've looked at the lesson the shop, the glory, the treasure. And lastly, and we'll wrap up with this, the kingdom. The kingdom. Now, not only do you get included into the church, but in the age to come, eternal, and in the age to come, eternal life, this is God's promise. This is his work. A quality of life reconciled to God. Matthew, in his account of this exchange, adds a little bit to this. Um, he says, Jesus said to them in verse 28 of 19 of Matthew, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So, beloved, this is the millennial kingdom. This is when Christ sits on his throne. He says the apostles who had followed him will sit on 12 thrones as judges. Now, before you think this is only for the apostles, keep in mind that Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him as well. So this is a promise to those who would trust in Christ. And remember, Jesus was giving this promise to the rich young ruler. He was saying, if you do this, You'll have treasure in heaven, eternal life. So, to wrap up, verse 31, Christ, he lastly points out one interesting, very interesting statement. He says, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Mark 10, 31 there. So to better understand this, it's helpful, and I don't have time to take us through it, but if you read Matthew's account of this, starting in verse 19, or uh, chapter 19, verse 16, and going to uh, 20, verse 16, 
it really flows better because Jesus continues his teaching. And he gives a parable afterward. Um, you remember it. It's the parable of the, the laborers who start at different times of the day, right? And some started and agreed to work for a certain amount at the beginning of the day, and they worked all day. Then some started midday, some started towards the end of the day. And at the end of the day, the master has the right to pay everybody what he agreed to, which in this case was the same. This follows in Matthew 20, right after this statement, but many who are first will be last, and the last first, in chapter 20, verse 1, he says, for the kingdom of heaven is like. So this parable follows. I encourage you to go through it on your own if you're able to. Um, we don't begrudge his generosity, do we? He has given us so many great and precious promises. For those of you who have trusted in Christ, we'll look at some questions to ponder. But before that, if you're here and you know that you have not trusted the Savior, I urge you, call out to him today. May this be the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts while it's still called day. It's very important. The questions to ponder for us who do know Christ and have made this commitment, number one, do you consider yourself rich? And do you think you're okay because you live a blessed life? We went through it before last week, how blessed we are. We live far better than the richest kings of old ever did. Right. Number two, how do you praise God for accomplishing what is impossible for man? How do you praise him? And number three, how... Or no, have you surrendered everything to Christ? Have you? If not, think about, meditate on, and identify what area of your life you have yet to surrender to him, to whatever extent that is, because you know he's constantly growing us into his image. I want to close with a poem. It's a prayer. We sang it at the end of last week, but I'll just read it today. And may this be our prayer as we go out from this place. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. 
Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour, at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, thanking you for your word, thanking you for preserving it. Thank you for the truth that that it teaches us, that we learn how you receive all the glory for salvation, that no one should boast. It's a work of God. It's a work of your Holy Spirit in the hearts of man. And we pray that you would give us the strength to follow your commands, to live them out because you've done this in our life. Lord, we learned last week even how we're either a slave of sin or a slave of Christ. We either love our sin, although we could publicly say, I'm a pretty good person, people respect me, I'm doing okay. But deep down, may each one of us be enabled by your Holy Spirit to acknowledge the sin that clings so closely. And may we lay aside every weight of sin. That you would receive all the glory. We thank you now, and I pray for each one here They would go out, know you more, live for you more, and bring you glory. We pray this for all, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Andrew, for so faithfully preaching the word of God morning. Uh, That is so true, isn't it? Salvation is all of God. It's nothing we do. It's nothing. It's not our own strength. It's not our own good works. It's not our good weighing out the bad. It's not God starting something and us finishing. It's all God. Step one, all the way into the kingdom. And Uh, If you don't know Christ, if you haven't trusted him or you haven't trusted him completely, you're still holding on to your own works, I'd encourage uh, you to to talk with one of us, Andrew and myself, after the service, and and, uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to point you to Christ and trust in him. We have one last hymn for us this morning. It's hymn 105, My Savior's Love. It's a familiar hymn. 105, My Savior's Love, and if you would, please stand for this last hymn. 